All right, well, welcome back everybody. I am Nick Timmeraus. I'm the Chief Economics Correspondent for the Wall Street Journal. I'm going to be moderating our next panel. Uh, and, and so thank you for joining us today. Um, I am joined uh, by Mervyn King, who is the former governor of the Bank of England, Claudia Borio, who is the head of the Monetary and Economic Department at the Bank for International Settlements, uh, Larry Summers, uh, the former Treasury Secretary and the professor at Harvard University, and Tyler Goodspeed, who is a Klein Heinz Fellow at the Hoover Institution and served at the CEA in the Trump administration. Our panel today is on what have we learned? And you can submit questions for the audience that we will get to later on um, on Cato's webpage. You can submit those on Facebook. You can submit them on Twitter. Uh, using the hashtag uh, CatoMonCon. And we will get to those questions after uh, presentations from all of our panelists, uh, which we will get to right now. And we will start with Mervyn King. So Lord King, over to you. Thank you, Nick. Well, I'm delighted to join you all at this Cato Institute's 40th annual monetary conference. 40 years ago, we were coming out of the great inflation when inflation reached double digits or higher. The lessons learned then were clear. Macroeconomic policy should aim at price stability and a sustainable fiscal position. Microeconomic measures, such as tax and labor market reform, should aim at improving the supply side. Over the next 10 years or so after that, monetary policy was given the explicit task of achieving price stability and eventually all major central banks adopted in one form or another flexible inflation targeting. Since then, CPI inflation has averaged close to the 2% target until recently. Inflation in the industrialized world has now risen to close to or around 10%. So what has gone wrong? What have we learned? And just as important, what have we forgotten? I want to suggest that there are three key lessons from the past 40 years. First, inflation targeting is not a new theory of inflation, but it's a way of helping central banks to make decisions about monetary policy. Second, money matters. You can't explain inflation solely in terms of real variables, despite the attempts of very clever economists to do so. And third, the misuse of models has led to hubris about the ability of monetary policy to fine tune inflation. So let me take these in turn. First, the origins of inflation targets lay in a desire to improve the way policy decisions were taken and to enhance the transparency and accountability of those making decisions on interest rates. Inflation targeting was really a compromise between rules and discretion. It was constrained discretion. What inflation targeting was not was a theory of the monetary transmission mechanism or how inflation gets determined. It was much closer to a way of healthy living for central banks. And like any successful diet, it steers away from boom and bust and is a continuous process. Unfortunately, as inflation targeting spread around the world, 
and appeared successful, the academic profession turned a way of life into a rather precise, indeed hubristic view that central banks can control closely inflation. And I think this led to mistakes in 2020 and 21. Instead of asking what's going on here in the economy, the pandemic was seen by all central banks as a particularly large business cycle downturn. And I think this was a misdiagnosis of a situation in which supply certainly fell sharply following government and business decisions to curtail output, but demand also fell in tandem with the fall in short run potential output. So the fall in both demand and supply didn't open up a significant output gap. And from that perspective, there was no real need for a large monetary policy stimulus. There was a need for governments to use fiscal policy to prevent the lockdown and shutdown from creating high unemployment for a long period when the impact of the pandemic was expected to be short-lived. In Europe, we achieved this through furlough schemes and in the US by temporary but quite generous support to the unemployed. And there was a need for central banks to intervene in March 2020 to deal with dislocation of some financial markets by acting as a market maker of last resort. We did this in the corporate bond market and others during the financial crisis. But once the dislocations disappear, as they did, the support should be withdrawn. By engaging in substantial amounts of quantitative easing, QE, in both 2020 and 2021, central banks injected large amounts of money into the economy. In the US, broad money rose at the fastest rate since the Second World War. Now that rise in, in money was compounded by a lot of bad luck. Following the Russian invasion of Ukraine and its impact on global food and energy prices, the rise in core inflation was augmented by a rise in what we hoped would be a temporary rise in global food and energy prices. And in the US, obviously, the monetary stimulus exacerbated the problem created by the excessive fiscal stimulus, as argued by Larry Summers. But don't forget or overlook the role of the expansion of QE. Of course, the good news here is that the mistakes which I believe were made in 2020 and 21 in monetary policy ended then and there. We're no longer injecting lots of money into the economy. The Fed's now fully committed to bringing inflation back to target, painful though that may now well be. And Chairman Powell emphasized that in his remarks a few minutes ago. That's the first lesson. Inflation targeting is not and shouldn't be seen as a theory of inflation. The second is that money matters. It is slightly bizarre for a central bank to stop thinking in terms of money when inflation is by definition a nominal phenomenon. You can't explain inflation in a model with only real variables. But central banks have been seduced by the idea that inflation can be explained solely by expectations 
which in turn are determined by the inflation target. I think this is hubris. It's a failure of common sense. Why should expectations be anchored to the target when inflation is rising rapidly and central banks argue that the rise in inflation is purely transitory and appear complacent in terms of their response? When I was at the Bank of England, the, the staff would prepare forecasts of inflation for different paths of interest rates. No matter what path was chosen, inflation always came back to 2% in the medium term. Why? Because the model said it had to return to the target. I did not find this reassuring. In 2020 and 2021, the acceleration of broad money growth in the US to its highest level, as I said, since the Second World War, should have been a warning sign. I worry that intellectual hubris among the economics profession has led to the abandonment of the old and rather common sense view that inflation reflects too much money chasing too few goods. In the pandemic, the response of governments and businesses ensured that there were too few goods and central banks ensured that there was too much money. The result, higher core inflation, was both predictable and predicted. Now, I think that the unfortunate obsession of the earlier US monetarist community with a monetary base has in part been responsible for the belief that inflation can be explained solely in terms of real variables with the quick addition of an inflation target. An analysis of monetary developments, especially broad money, should be part of a, a narrative which central banks convey to explain their actions. And I think central banks should be much clearer that QE is money printing. The third lesson I think of the last 40 years is that the, the misuse of models has led to hubris about the ability of monetary policy to fine tune inflation. Models are most useful when they are seen as parables. They provide useful insights, but they're not descriptions of the world. The world is far too complex and uncertain to be captured by any model. And unfortunately, the attempt to build precise quantitative models of inflation targets, then I think to hubris about our ability to predict and control inflation. Over the past decade, the intellectual consensus became one of thinking that the biggest challenge to monetary theory was to explain why central banks were finding it difficult to raise inflation up to the 2% target. I found this a bizarre view. Over the decade that followed the financial crisis, annual core PCE inflation in the US never threatened to go below zero and averaged around 1.5%. Now that's true, that's below the target of 2%. But from the perspective of the 1990s, when inflation targets and independent central banks were gathering speed, this would have seemed like nirvana. And the search for new policy tools to fine tune inflation reflected, I think, this academic hubris. It gave birth to forward guidance, to yield curve control, to asymmetric flexible average inflation targeting, 
an excessive focus on point forecasts. I hope that these developments can now be consigned to footnotes in monetary history. Now, finally, the intellectual failures that I've stressed are not and should not be seen as the responsibility of either central banks or individuals inside those institutions. In my view, they rest fairly and squarely on the attempt by the economics profession to set monetary policy in their model and not in the world. The immediate challenge is that having allowed core inflation to rise and with an exceptionally tight labor market, it's probably necessary now to restore central bank credibility by bringing inflation down, even if that means a recession. And the inflation rate over the next two years is highly uncertain because the invasion of Ukraine could lead to further rises in food and energy prices, or they're staying at current levels, or indeed in some eventualities, they could fall back to pre-invasion levels. And the implications of this range of possibilities means that the range for future CPI inflation spans a range between double digit levels and zero. So I do not envy my successors in handling this challenge, but I would urge them to bear in mind the three lessons that I've identified today from the experience of the past 40 years. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. King. And now uh, we will go to Claudio Borio from the BIS. Claudio, the floor is yours. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Nick. Um, and it's clearly a pleasure to be back, although only virtually, um, and to be on such a distinguished panel. Now, this event is about the state of monetary policy after uh, 40 years, roughly since the uh, series of this conference began. Um, so I thought that when Mervyn talked about three lessons, I will talk about three challenges uh, from the past, the present, and, and the future, and try to explore the relationship between them. My, my key point is that the way that monetary policy tackles one challenge uh, by interacting with the economic environment um, tends to define what the next one is going to be. And at the core of my presentation is going to be the uh, evolving nature of the business cycle, the role that uh, financial forces play, play there. So where, the, uh, where does the story begin? And in fact, it does begin some 40 years ago in the early to, to mid 1980s, when I think a subtle change in the nature of the business cycle took place from what I would call inflation induced to financial cycle induced recessions. And by financial cycle, I simply mean the interaction between credit, risk-taking and asset prices, especially real estate prices that tends to generate expansions and contractions in those financial variables, effectively endogenous cycles so that the expansion sets the basis, uh, sows the seeds of the subsequent contraction. Um, so what, what do I mean exactly by this shift? Um, well, until the mid to uh, early to mid 1980s, the typical recession was triggered by a rise in inflation, uh, therefore a tightening of monetary policy with rather little happening to variables such as that are indicators of the, of the financial cycle. 
Thereafter, well, we know that inflation was low and stable. Therefore, there was little reason for central banks to tighten. But then a big financial expansion turned into a, a contraction. And the great financial crisis is just the most spectacular, just one and the most spectacular example of, of that process. And we've done some research that shows that this is a more general phenomenon. So you may ask, why did this change take place? Um, Personally, I think that it has to do with some fundamental changes in, in policy regimes, and I would identify three policy regimes across the world. The first was a shift from financially repressed to liberalized financial systems, which simply provided greater scope for these financial expansions and, and contractions to take place. The second was the uh, globalization of the real economy which uh, provided some powerful tailwinds that increased the production possibilities of, uh, of the world economy, and in particular, put persistent, persistent disinflationary pressures of a structural, structural nature. And last but not least, the establishment of credible um, monetary policy regimes that were very much focused on near-term inflation control and paid little attention to credit and monetary aggregates to go back to a point that uh, Murray made just uh, a few moments ago. Now, I don't think that it is a coincidence that the nature of the business cycle that we saw uh, over this long phase came to resemble, uh, resemble much more closely those that we had seen from 1870s to the Great Depression, if you like, the gold standard period, which was identified as uh, the first uh, globalization era, financial and real and co coincided with the relative price stability in the world. So put differently, and this is the key point, inflation became an unreliable signal of the sustainability of economic expansions. And hence, by the same token, a less reliable compass for, for monetary policy. Implications of this, uh, a couple for policy and uh, one for the economic environment more generally, one about policy, the first one is that, of course, monetary policy did tighten relatively little during expansions, but then is strongly and persistently during contractions in order to deal with the very strong uh, uh, financial headwinds that it was tackling. And this resulted, or at least contributed to, a progressive loss in the room for policy maneuver. And then the unreliability of inflation, and this is the second point, the unreliability of inflation as a signal of the sustainability of economic expansions was actually transmitted to the uh, lack of reliability, unreliability of the so-called natural interest rate of R star as a guide for policy, because we know that R star is defined largely in terms of what happens to inflation when output is uh, the same as uh, equates potential. The implication for the economic environment is that this uh, asymmetric response together with broader changes that we saw in, in the real economy tended to contribute to a progressive increase in, in debt levels relative to GDP to historically high uh, peaks, both uh, I'm talking about both private and public sector, sector debt. And here you see a certain element of a debt trap because uh, low interest rates and high debt tend to reinforce each other so that it becomes harder to raise interest rates without creating problems for the economy. And this is very much a rather 
burdensome legacy. Which takes me to the present. I think we're facing an unprecedented uh, set of economic uh, circumstances, and that is a risk of recession uh, driven by an increase in inflation and the need for monetary policy to tighten, what we saw until the mid-1980s, with widespread financial vulnerabilities, in particular high levels of debt, which was, if you like, the, uh, the key feature of the period after the uh, early to mid-1980s. Now, this clearly greatly complicates the calibration of monetary policy. We know that the economy is going to be more sensitive to interest rates, but we don't know how much. And let me remind you that real interest rates are a firmly negative territory in much of the, much of the world. And of course, there could be implications for financial stability that maybe we could uh, address in, in the Q&A. Now, of course, against this unique background, the natural question is why did uh, inflation that had been so dormant for so long uh, surge again? Now, we, this is a difficult question. Uh, everyone has an answer. In the annual economic report that came out in, in late June, uh, we thought that probably the most, um, I would say, uh, the best explanation, at least the one that we could come up with, involves three factors. And in all of this, of course, the COVID uh, crisis has uh, an important uh, role to play. Now, the first one is a surprisingly, surprisingly rebound in, in aggregate demand. This was partly simply because it was a sp spontaneous rebound after demand had been uh, repressed artificially for so long. But it was also, and this is important, it was also fueled by, by macroeconomic policies. I'm not just talking about fiscal policy, but also by accommodating monetary policy. The second factor is a surprisingly persistent rotation of aggregate demand from services to goods, which put global supply chains under a lot of pressure. And finally, uh, inelastic supply, which was unable to keep up with this big surge and rotation in, in aggregate demand. Now, I, I tend to think of this as, if you like, the rumblings or eruptions of an engine, think of it as the global economy, which you switch on after having switched off for some time, but not only switched off, to which you have added high uh, octane fuel and also kicked quite hard. Now, of course, more recently, the, the war-induced uh, negative supply side shock has further added a lot uh, substantially to the inflation pressures. And I'm thinking in particular of the increasing commodity prices, energy and food, uh, especially. Now, regardless of the specific causes of the surge of inflation, and let me stress, regardless of what those causes are, I think it's essential for monetary policy to react, and it has reacted, uh, and of course, to get the job done. Um, now, the key reason for this, I, which I would like to stress, is that transitions from low to high inflation regimes tend to be self-reinforcing. Now, in the annual economic report, we develop a complementary view of inflation, which basically sees it as two regimes, high and low inflation, which are actually very different in terms of the uh, price dynamics, with self-reinforcing transitions uh, from low to high. Now, why self-reinforcing? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, because when inflation starts increasing, it moves from the region of rational inattention, in which it has hardly any impact on the agent's behavior, into the region of sharp focus. And second, and closely related to that, is that it becomes more representative 
of the price uh, of the prices that agents care about. And this is because inflation, those changes in prices become more similar, they become more synchronized. So that as a result of all this, inflation can become a better coordinating mechanisms for the behavior of economic agents and therefore also help uh, trigger wage and, and price spirals. Now, of course, as was mentioned before and as was mentioned by Chairman Powell, the, uh, the near-term costs, there may be near, there will be near-term costs of bringing inflation down, but those near-term costs are much smaller than the costs that would have to be incurred if inflation became entrenched. So you have an important intertemporal component that one should bear in mind. Now, all this raises a number of lessons. And um, let me just mention one of them, which was highlighted by Agustin Carsons, the general manager of the BIS at Jackson Hole just, just recently. And that is that the low inflation regime that prevailed for so long may have masked the supply constraints, the inevitable supply constraints that uh, were there. But those constraints obviously had not gone away. Now, until recently, they took the form of financial instability, these huge financial expansions that had to come to an end. More recently, they have taken the more familiar, but probably uh, almost forgotten form of uh, higher inflation. So the key point here is that it is always dangerous to have macroeconomic policies, fiscal and monetary policy, trying to test those limits. Because that debt, which is an inevitable implication of those policies, uh, cannot be the engine of long-term growth. Which takes me to the future. What is going to be the likely future evolution of the, of the business cycle? Um, I think that there are reasons to believe that the environment is going to become structurally more more inflationary. Now, personally, I have always felt that the end game of the trajectory the global economy had been following for over 40 years would have been inflation. But probably what happened is that the two exogenous shocks, the, the pandemic and the war, have brought forward what could have been uh, the endogenous end game that I was referring to. So why structurally more inflationary? Well, a number of reasons. First of all, the uh, macroeconomic favorable tailwinds that we saw for so long are turning into headwinds. One example is demographics. We know that that's going to turn. But uh, the one that I have been stressing is globalization. And of course, we are seeing signs that globalization uh, may be in retreat. In addition, looking forward, one can also see new uh, headwinds emerging. And the one in particular that I have in mind is the greening of the, of the economy. Furthermore, in the background, the geopolitical and political environment is becoming more hostile to international cooperation and also more hostile, I would say, to the role of market forces in the economy. And we see that populism is on the rise. And last but not least, going back to what I said earlier, we are living, we still have with us the legacy of those 40 years, which is much higher levels of both private and in particular also public, public debt. So it's not hard to see how this environment, which is closer to what we saw actually in the 1970s, can be structurally more inflationary. Now, of course, the future is not preordained and is uh, clouded in, in a lot of uncertainty. But I think that one thing is clear, 
and that is that this environment will test uh, central banks to, to the full. It will test them from an intellectual perspective, the analytical frameworks that they use in, when setting policy, but also from a political economy or institutional perspective, because it is very likely that central bank independence will come under greater threat. There are a number of reasons, but just think of the fact that interest rates will be rising and that will make uh, the, uh, the costs of the current historically high levels of debt much more visible. So, so far, of course, central banks have shown their mettle and they have pivoted very forcefully in order to get inflation under control. But if what I said is uh, probably right, and we don't know whether it is, I think that tougher tests lie ahead. So thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Claudio. Um, uh, take a, I'll take a quick minute here just to remind everybody, you can uh, submit questions that I will pose to the panelists in a little bit via Cato's webpage, Facebook, YouTube, or on Twitter using the hashtag CatoMonCon. Uh, next will be Larry Summers. Now, Larry couldn't make it uh, live today, but we were able to record a video presentation with him ahead of time. And I'm not sure if we have audio for Larry. Uh, we'll take just a second there. It is most unusual, Nick, to be able to see Larry but not hear him. <laughs> yeah, there's a first, right? Uh, well, uh, I think the, the team um, here in DC is going to try to get the audio to work uh, in the interim here. Uh, if, we're, if we're not able to get Larry's comments now, then we'll jump to Tyler and we'll come back to him. Um, we'll just take a second here and see if, if they're able to get a um, audio version of Larry to work. Um, and again, uh, Go ahead and submit your questions. There are some good ones that have already come in, and we'll get to those as soon as uh, the, the opening statements presentations are concluded. Um, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and call on you, Tyler, uh, and we'll try to get back to Larry after your comments, Tyler. OK, thank you, Nick. And I, I was going to say one of the risks of speaking last on a panel of four is that by the time it's your go, you've, you've run out of both time and the opportunity to say something novel. Uh, so to inoculate against that risk, I had actually decided to share the findings from a new working paper of mine, which has neither been posted nor presented yet. So the results have never been seen before this morning. So I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. So hopefully that works. And people should be able to see now, uh, title page, Trust the Experts. Yes. So a little over a year ago, just as survey measures of consumer inflation expectations began to rise while bond markets continued to shrug off the risk of a potentially persistent inflationary shock, I began to ask the question, who does a better job forecasting inflation, consumers or professional economists? And what does that mean for monetary policy? 
Now, what we see here are the two oldest continuous surveys of inflation expectations in the United States, the University of Michigan Survey of Consumers and the Livingston Survey of Professional Economists. The Michigan Survey has been asking a sample of consumers their expectations for inflation over the next 12 months since 1960, while the late financial journalist Joseph Livingston began conducting a twice annual survey of professional economists' inflation expectations back in 1946. And that survey since 1990 has been continued by the Federal Reserve Bank of, of Philadelphia. Now, these, these changes, these surveys have had a lot of changes over time. So it actually took a great deal of work just to ensure parallel construction such that we can have a genuine apples to apples comparison over time. Uh, but what that comparison shows is that while the professionals in the Livingston survey have been more accurate in recent decades, consumer inflation expectations tracked inflation much more closely during the great inflation of the 1960s, 70s, and early 80s. Now, we can test this more formally by regressing forecast errors on a constant and a binary variable indicating which survey we're looking at uh, to see whether forecasts are systematically biased, i.e., are they on average different from zero over time? And what I find is that whereas over the entire sample period from 1960 through 2022, I can reject the null hypothesis that consumers are unbiased. So on average, consumers overestimate inflation by about 0.5 percentage points. I cannot reject the null hypothesis that professionals are unbiased. So the experts are generally unbiased and their errors no different from zero. And on average, uh, if I restrict the sample just to that early period of price stability before the great inflation, you can see the results are almost identical. But once we get into the great inflation from 1966 to 1980, I find that the experts on average underestimated actual inflation by a statistically significant 2.15 percentage points. While I cannot reject the null, hypothesis that consumers average forecast error was equal to zero. Both consumers and the professionals uh, systematically overestimated inflation during the bulk or disinflation of the 1980s, though consumers performed on average slightly better, uh, whereas during the period of the great moderation from 1987 until 2020, the experts error was statistically no different from zero, whereas consumers systematically overestimated inflation. And since 2020, the average error of the experts has been more than double that of consumers. Now, digging deeper, when I look at forecast errors by inflation level, I find actually a statistically significant structural break at an inflation rate of three and a half percent, roughly three and a half percent. So whereas the experts exhibit smaller forecast errors across all inflation buckets below three and a half percent, Consumers exhibit much smaller forecast errors across all but one inflation bucket over three and a half percent. And I see this as well when I formally estimate forecast errors above and below that three and a half percent threshold. So when inflation is below three and a half percent, relative to the experts, consumers overestimate inflation by a factor of four. But when inflation is over three and a half percent, I cannot reject the null hypothesis that the consumer's average error is equal to zero, whereas the experts systematically underestimate inflation by about 1.4 percentage points. 
What about other measures of forecast rationale? Well, one measure is that forecast errors should be uncorrelated over non-overlapping forecast horizons. On this measure, both consumers and the experts fail when inflation is below 3.5%, but consumers pass with flying colors when inflation is above 3.5%. Is there information in the forecast themselves that can be used to predict forecast errors? That would violate the assumption that all information is fully exploited. Again, both fail this test when inflation is below 3.5%, but consumers pass when inflation is above three and a half percent. Another measure is that actual inflation should on average move one for one with the forecast. This is the classic Minzer and Zarnowitz test of forecast rationality. Here again, both consumers and experts fail when inflation is below three and a half percent, but consumers pass when inflation is above three and a half percent. And then finally, an additional measure of forecast efficiency is whether public information available at the time of the forecast is fully exploited. So here I estimate the effect on forecast residuals of the inflation rate, uh, the T-bill rate, and the unemployment rate observed in the months immediately prior to the forecast. And once again, both consumers and experts fail when inflation is below 3.5%, but consumers pass when inflation is above 3.5%. Okay, so that suggests that while the experts do a better job than consumers when below a certain threshold, it's the consumers who do a better job when inflation is above a certain threshold. But what about specific moments of inflation regime change? So here I define an inflationary or disinflationary shock as a point in time at which the five-year forward average inflation rate is at least two standard deviations above or below it's trailing five-year average. So this allows us to both identify a persistent inflation regime change, as well as the timing of that regime shift. What do I find? Well, here again, outside of periods of inflation regime change, I cannot reject the null hypothesis that the experts in the Livingston survey are unbiased, uh, but consumers typically overestimate future inflation. But during these periods of inflation regime change, while the experts systematically underestimate future inflation, the consumer's average forecast error is statistically no different from zero. Uh, both groups systematically overestimate, overestimate inflation during periods of disinflation, disinflationary shock by about the same magnitude, but that actually implies that the consumers have revised their expectations uh, by more than, than the experts during those shocks. While neither group exhibits perfect rationality either during or outside of inflation regime change, the experts, for the most part, pass standard tests of forecast rationality during periods of low and stable inflation, while failing every test during periods of regime change. In contrast, while consumers fail every test of forecast rationality when inflation is low and stable, they pass several key tests of forecast rationality during periods of regime change, both from low and stable to high inflation and from high inflation to disinflation. So this speaks to that, that, that question of, of rational and rationality. What about the experts? Well, if we look at average forecast errors, uh, professional economists affiliated with labor organizations 
i.e. unions, generally perform the best in forecasting inflation. When inflation is low and stable, I cannot reject the null hypothesis that their average error is zero. While the professional economists with the biggest average forecast errors during periods of low and stable inflation are those affiliated with government, they consistently underestimate inflation by a statistically significant margin. During the transition from low and stable to high inflation, the worst experts are those affiliated with the Federal Reserve, who exhibit the highest average forecast errors. In contrast, the smallest forecast errors are, once again, those experts affiliated with labor organizations. The exact opposite is true during disinflationary shocks. Then it's the professional economists affiliated with the Federal Reserve who exhibit the smallest average forecast errors, while it's those labor organizations that exhibit the largest. Looking at these standard measures of forecast rationality and efficiency, most experts do a pretty good job when inflation is low and stable. But with the exception of those affiliated labor organizations, they fail miserably during periods of transition to an inflationary regime. So what does this all mean? Well, for one thing, I think this illustrates the importance of skin in the game. Is it purely accidental that the categories of experts who generally have the best track record in rationally forecasting inflation are those in the business of negotiating wage contracts and extending long-term loans, so labor organizations and commercial banks? Is it accidental that the average consumer facing a budget constraint pays closer attention to inflation when the cost of an average consumption bundle is impinging more on that constraint? Second, I would wager that the experts with access to the most sophisticated macroeconomic modeling capabilities are those with academic institutions, government, and the Federal Reserve. And yet it's precisely those experts who perform the worst on most standard measures of forecast rationality, particularly during periods of inflation regime change. And I think that ought to caution us against over-reliance on models uh, when a lot of the relevant variables and underlying parameters are non-stationary. Finally, I think the most important lesson is that this affirms the merit of the old Greenspan definition of price stability as a level of inflation low enough that agents do not need to think about it in their daily decision making. Because the evidence here indicates that once consumers do notice inflation, they're forced to abandon rational irrationality and instead pay exceptionally close attention to prices. And so while I'm open to the arguments, I'm wary of recent public suggestions that the Fed's inflation target should perhaps be raised from 2% to 3% because the latter level would seem to be flirting dangerously with the level or threshold above which this research would suggest that consumers start to pay exceptionally close attention. Thank you. Thanks so much, Tyler. Um, all right, we're going to see if it's possible to keep Larry Summers silenced, and uh, we will return to the video uh, presentation that uh, he recorded for us, and I think the audio should be working now, so uh, stand by for Larry Summers. I'm glad to be here at the Cato Monetary Conference, a conference that over many years has made an important contribution to monetary policy thought. 
I'm glad to be moderated by uh, Nick Timoros, the voice of uh, the Federal Reserve System, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, and to be joined by a group of distinguished panelists, uh, particularly my old friend and teacher, former uh, governor of the Bank of England, uh, Mervyn King. We come together at a contentful moment for uh, monetary policy at the end of, uh, at the beginning of a period perhaps of significant inflation after a 40-year period of relative price stability. I'd like to make three observations broadly on monetary policy challenges going forward. First, on any theory uh, that we have in economics, inflation at this moment was quite predictably an outcome of the policies that were being pursued. For those who, unlike me, believe in tracking money, money stocks closely, monetary growth accelerated very, very dramatically about a year, a uh, year and a half uh, ago. For those who, like me, take a perspective that's more based on levels of aggregate demand relative to levels of uh, supply. You had a combination of substantially negative uh, real interest rates, a $2 trillion savings overhang from resources people were not able to spend during COVID, and massive fiscal expansion in the United States totaling some 14% of GDP in 2021 against an output gap of perhaps 3% of GDP that made a substantial overflow inevitable. True, there were bottlenecks. True, there were disturbances on uh, the supply side. But many of those disturbances weren't really disturbances on the supply side. They were bottlenecks that arose from very strong aggregate uh, demand. And the idea that there would be bottlenecks, that there would be constraints on supply in the aftermath of COVID should not have been surprising especially given all that was said during the worst of the COVID period about business closures and subsequent reductions in uh, the economy's potential. So for me, the inflation that has arisen was an entirely predictable consequence of excess demand. I don't think that inflation of 9% can be blamed entirely on excess uh, demand. There surely have been supply factors, but it seems to me hard to escape the conclusion that just as during the Vietnam War, excess demand pushed America from being a sub 2% inflation country to being a five to 6% inflation country, that something similar 
has uh, happened in uh, the last several years. It may be that, as many have argued, that there is a fiscal theory of the price level aspect. Uh, I am open to considering these views, but at this point, I'm somewhat skeptical because I believe that uh, there is limited scope to monetize uh, budget deficits in a world where money now pays interest uh, in terms of deposits at the central bank, in a world where government debt it has a relatively short uh, maturity uh, structure. In any event, I don't think the central problem was of some kind of conceptual understanding. I think the central problem was of a failure to act on the conceptual understandings uh, that are well-established in economics. You saw it in rhetoric that came out of the central banking uh, community in late 2020 and early 2021, emphasizing their social responsibilities, emphasizing issues that monetary policy can't really address, like uh, the particularly high unemployment rates uh, facing minority groups or facing uh, disadvantaged uh, populations. I don't think there is an alternative response to, but to uh, rely on uh, restrained uh, policies. My own reading of the evidence is that restraint applied more vigorously and more credibly is ultimately less costly in terms of unemployment, in terms of lost output, than restraint that is not uh, credible. Just as nations that are better prepared for war are often less likely to have to fight war, central banks that are credible in their anti-inflation commitments will find fulfilling those uh, commitments uh, to be less uh, costly. I welcome the evolution of the Fed's rhetoric over the last six months uh, in this direction, most notably in Chair Powell's remarks in Jackson Hole, but continue to believe that it is very important to recognize that disinflation has costs and to signal a willingness to accept costs in order to achieve disinflation, rather than to undermine credibility by projecting serenity about the ability to achieve a soft landing. The grim truth is that soft landings are, in my view, what George Bernard Shaw said of second marriage, the triumph of hope over uh, experience. My second observation uh, goes to policy over the substantially longer run and references the period after uh, the uh, financial crisis uh, in uh, the United States. I am convinced that there is a broad range of forces that are operating to reduce 
neutral, uh, real uh, interest rates. Some are on the savings side, increased uncertainty, increased uh, life expectancy, an increased share of income going to those with very high incomes. Some are on uh, the investment side, slower population uh, growth, meaning less new need for new tools to equip and house new uh, workers, less need for new uh, housing as uh, fewer families uh, form. Some go to the price of capital goods. A uh, cell phone today has more computing power than a Cray supercomputer did in 1993, and yet it only costs uh, $600. Investment banks, hotel offices, oil drillers tell me that one rig can account for twice as many wells as was the case five years ago. These examples could be proliferated. They all have in common an increase in the supply of capital relative to uh, the demand. That means, to my mind, that neutral real interest rates are going to be substantially lower in the future than they have been uh, in uh, the past. Put differently, that means there will be a tendency for savings to flow into existing capital goods rather than new capital goods because of reduced investment opportunities. That means higher asset prices. That means more tendency to take on uh, leverage. I regard these tendencies in the pre-COVID period as being driven by economic fundamentals rather than being driven by monetary policy uh, error for the most part. Had monetary policy maintained rates, uh, real rates at higher levels, I believe the likely consequence would have been even more sluggish growth and even more of a deflationary tendency than what we observed in the industrial uh, world. I think there is a significant chance that as the extreme fiscal stimulus associated with COVID leaves uh, the system, if inflation is brought down, that we will return to such a situation where the absorption of saving will be a crucial macroeconomic challenge. One of the great debates, it seems to me, will be whether that absorption of saving is best achieved through policy determined very low real rates, possibly even uh, negative uh, real uh, rates, or whether it is best pursued by fiscal and other structural policies directed at operating on the level of saving and the level of investment so as to raise the level of neutral real rates. My instincts, but I cannot prove that I am right, are on the latter side. I suspect that very low real interest rates court financial uh, instability, make 
excess leverage in bubbles uh, more likely, and also slow the process of creative destruction of uh, failed or should be failed uh, enterprises. And so if I am right, I think we will need to think about direct uh, policies, whether it's uh, changes in the level of deficit, redistributions from richer to poorer, or from younger uh, to older, measures to inhibit precautionary saving by providing better insurance, measures to directly stimulate investment in key areas like the environment where the social return exceeds the uh, private uh, return. These may be the better strategy for dealing with a savings absorption uh, problem. But I think that reality is one we may well need to face uh, again within a few years. My third observation is of a different uh, sort. I have become increasingly convinced in recent years that central bank communication has lost uh, its way. I believe that an earlier generation of central bankers, Alan Greenspan, particularly Paul Volcker, understood what the Delphi oracles understood, that if you are perceived as omnipotent and omniscient, it is a good idea to keep your statements vague and oracular so as to not destroy an illusion that gives people confidence uh, going forward. The current habit in the central banking community of frequent forecasts, frequent uh, press conferences, reliance on forward guidance seems to me to be quite problematic because inevitably forecasts turn out to be wrong, promises turn out to not be keepable, and the result is a substantial loss of credibility. The predictions made by the Fed in the spring of 2021 that interest rates would remain at zero well into 2024 seem to me to be a particularly extreme example of this phenomenon. The central difficulty with forward guidance, in my view, is that the markets don't believe it, so it doesn't have much of an impact on longer-term uh, rates and therefore not much of an impact on uh, market behavior to stabilize the economy. On the other hand, central banks take their own forward guidance seriously and therefore are constrained to feel constrained uh, to adhere to the policies they promised, even when those policies in light of subsequent conditions look unwise. After all, central forward guidance is without content if the central bank will do what is best moment by moment. It is only with content 
if it is constraining and influencing of policy going forward. And that can only be justified if it has substantial benefits at the moment that it is provided, something that at this point I regard as being uh, unproven. So my hope uh, in sum would be for central banking policies that are more humble in recognizing inherent uncertainties, less trying to precisely forecast or guide than has been the case in recent years, that there will be a clear recognition of the need for resoluteness, resoluteness even if there is a significant price around the containment of uh, inflation, and uh, that a great deal of thought will go into the era we may be headed into of secular low real interest rates where savings absorption is a central problem. You know, there's an issue of inertia in central banking. And so I'll, I'll pose this question to, to the three panelists who are here, and I'll start with you, Mervyn King. There's, uh, we saw a lot of inertia, of course. Uh, there was the fast response to the shock in March 2020. And then once central banks were engaged in these asset purchase programs, there was a real fear of being pinned back at the lower bound, of having a long, uh, difficult uh, recovery, like the one that followed the GFC. Um, and so that created, I think, a sense of inertia that, well, uh, you know, this worked well in March, April of 2020. So let's let's stick with it. We don't want to uh, we don't want to make the mistakes that uh, people thought had been made in 2008, 9, and 10. Uh, and I wonder now if there's a if you have a similar concern that once central banks are moving to uh, raising rates in larger increments, the Fed has done 275 basis point increases. Uh, the ECB just did their first this morning. How do you think about the risk that once you start to move rates up at a higher rate of speed, uh, you you know you, you end up uh, doing too much or going too far? Is that at all a concern here that uh, this kind of inertia in central banking, committee dynamics, et cetera, can make it harder to to change course uh, when you need when it's appropriate to do that? I think the worst mistake would be to believe that gradualism in raising rates is the right answer, that namely that you just do 25 basis points or even in current circumstances, 50, and just keep doing that for a large number of, of meetings. I think it's much more important to ask the question, you know, what's going on, what's the right response? I, I think the problems that we've seen have been that ever since the financial crisis, most central banks were deeply reluctant to acknowledge that QE was essentially printing money, expanding the balance sheet, and instead tried to think about it in all kinds of complicated, sophisticated ways, credit easing, et cetera, which meant they didn't really confront the question of, do you really want to boost the money supply by only 5% or 25% or some other number? In 2009-10, QE offset what would otherwise have been a sharp decline in the money supply, which would have led quite possibly to another depression. And so that was, I think, the argument for doing it then, and it worked. 
the argument for doing lots of QE on other circumstances needs to be justified by an analysis of those circumstances. I don't believe that 2020-21 was a case for boosting demand. If you suddenly find that the supply potential of the economy is contracting, albeit temporarily, the last thing you want to do is to boost demand. And that's, I think, the, the basic mistake that, that was made. But it's because people have somehow said, we don't understand what QE is. It's some new instrument. It's been used for decades, expanding or contracting the central bank balance sheet, not on the scale in which it's happening now, but certainly qualitatively. I think, therefore, the, the, the problem is it's better to move quickly when you feel you're seeing a big change in circumstances and take the appropriate action, but you have to analyze it and tell a narrative to people as to why this is the appropriate action. What you need to avoid is central banks saying, gosh, there's some bad news here. I better jump in and do something to demonstrate that we're here, that we're out there to help people. But if you provide help in the wrong form, then you see what follows. From today onwards, I think having allowed inflation to rise and then having had the bad luck of the extra boost to inflation following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I think it's too late now to be, you know, trying to fine tune this. Words like soft landing just have to be abandoned at present. And you just have to show your determination to raise rates, even though that is quite likely now to be in a recession. Thank you. Uh, Claudio, I'd, I'd pose the same question to you. If there's an inertia in, in policymaking. We saw that last year. Uh, how do you think now about the uh, the risks of, you know, if 75 becomes the new 25 and, uh, it, you know, you, you end up in a place where you've gone too far, or maybe that's the right risk to take at, at, at the point where you have inflation as high as it is? Um, I'll turn to you. I think that um, my answer in terms of the risks now is, is similar to the one that Mervyn gave. Um, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, this tendency for these transitions to become self-reinforcing, uh, the fact that, and, and this was uh, mentioned before by Tyler, uh, models for a number of reasons uh, don't really work when you have these transitions. I think uh, the risk of uh, doing too uh, little is bigger than the risk of, uh, of doing too much. Um, and I expect that central banks will, uh, will continue uh, tightening until they see that inflation is, is coming down. It's coming down at the right speed and it's coming down to, towards the objective. Um, so I, I don't think that there is a risk that they will be doing too much. Um, but I would also add that maybe it's it's easy to to get inflation. It's easier for a, for a number of reasons to get inflation from eight to four. But I think the the longer you you this inflation persists, the harder is going to be to if you like the last mile to get inflation from four to two. Um, so all of this speaks in favor of forceful and uh, timely action. Thanks. And, and uh, Tyler, given the, the presentation you just made, I'd ask you the same question. How do you think about the, uh, you know, the two-sided nature of risks that uh, central banks could confront here at some point? Right. So I, I think that there are three reasons 
why there's an asymmetric, uh, there's going to be an asymmetry in terms of the risks of uh, 2021 versus 2022 and beyond. So in 2021, there was a confusion of the supply and demand shock. I mean, what we had was a supply shock, which was matched with a demand response. Uh, secondly, as, as both Mervyn and Claudia mentioned, there was a reliance on models uh, which are going to struggle in at moments of regime change. And our co-panelist Larry Summers recently had his uh, RA use the Fed's premier uh, dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models and also ran with their main model of Furbis and plugged into Furbis a 10% deficit finance fiscal stimulus, uh, ran it for, I think, three years. And at the end of five years, the increase in the rate of inflation was, was 75 basis points. So there's something, there's something wrong there when that is what your model is generating. Uh, purely deficit finance, 10% uh, annual stimulus for three straight years. Uh, third reason that I think there was uh, a, a miss in an inertia in 2021 that, that probably won't be re replicated in 2022 and beyond is the, the observation of the late Alan Meltzer writing about the policy failures of, of the great inflation and the origins of the great inflation. So writing in, in 2005 on the origins of the great inflation, Meltzer wrote that policymakers denied for several years that inflation had either begun or increased. They did not deny the numbers they saw, but like Gardner Ackley, CEA chair, they gave special explanations, a relative price theory for the general price level, in effect, claiming that the rise in the price level resulted from one-time transitory factors uh, that they did not expect to repeat. Later, they added other explanations, especially that the cause of inflation had changed from the classic demand pull to the new cost push, uh, which may sound familiar uh, for recent years. And then finally, I would just say that on the, the prospective front, I think there are a couple of reasons why we should not uh, expect similar inertia. One is that the gradualism doesn't really make sense the way it did in the aftermath of 2008-2009. That was, that was before inflation had risen above target. Inflation is now already well above target. So I think a case can be made for instead of gradualism, raising the nominal rate by enough to actually tighten ex-ante real interest rates uh, instead of this sort of incremental approach that I think was, was more appropriate for, for the last war. Um, thanks, Tyler. So uh, Mark asks on the event page, and this is a question from Mervyn King. He asks, um, Mervyn, what alternative monetary strategy should have been taken during the COVID uh, event that would soften the now post-COVID inflationary pressure? So I think two things. First, that central banks could have acted as a market maker of last resort in the markets that they were concerned about. Uh, we did that during the financial crisis in, in central banks offering to be a market maker of last resort. And that in the end didn't require large interventions in terms of sales or purchases. So that would have dealt with the particular problem of financial dislocation in March 2020. Secondly, no additional QE. Certainly not have done any additional QE at all. The fiscal response, I think, in the States, you can debate and say it was too large, but I think the furlough schemes in Europe were highly appropriate, but I think central banks doubled down on all this by doing vast amounts of QE when there was no obvious need to do so. 
because as Taylor pointed out, you know, it was both demand and supply were moving pretty much together all over the place in unpredictable ways. Um, and there's a question here from Corey on the event page. Uh, she asks Claudio or any of the others, she says, based on history, what do you think different targets central banks ought to look at? Inflation, nominal income, average inflation, uh, do any targets stand out to you as better than the others? Um, I think that that depends very much. I, I would just, um, uh, if I had to choose, I would say that it is important to for central banks not to lose sight of what is happening to credit and in that context also monetary aggregates. Um, there is information in those aggregates, particularly uh, here I may differ a little bit from, uh, from, from Irving, but we could have a longer discussion about this particular credit in, uh, I think that uh, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, uh, it can give you a sense of whether financial expansions are, uh, are sustainable or not sustainable and what is going to happen to the economy. But I would say that whatever, whatever um, system you put in place, I think that the key, and again, this is a personal view, but the key is to have something which is not asymmetric, that does not result in a bias over time. Monetary policy that it is more, not just counter-cyclical on the way down, but a monetary policy which is also counter-cyclical on the way up. And then the question is ex exactly how you achieve that. There are different ways of skinning a cat. But to me, that's, uh, that's a key principle that uh, is important to uh, take into account when designing policy. I, I want to follow on that and, and pose a question to Tyler, uh, which is you know, some of the most controversial, or they seemed to me controversial at the time in uh, March of 2020, when the Fed was announcing that it would purchase corporates and munis and do direct lending to middle market businesses. This was enabled through the CARES Act and Congress gave uh, a lot of equity to the Treasury Department to, to backstop losses. Um, but as we think, as, as we sit here today, and then I'll ask after Tyler, the other panelists to weigh in, uh, how, do you think the, how do you think today about the moral hazard concerns of having done that, of, of expanding the credit uh, role that the Fed was taking on in the crisis um, and and whether you know the Fed bought junk debt ETFs in April of 2020 or announced that they would do it, bought them only in small amounts. But how do you think now about uh, the risk reward or the cost benefit of having done that as we sit here today, um, uh, you know, two and a half years later? So I can understand the motivation of the Fed to ensure that in the face of the biggest macroeconomic shock since 1932, to ensure that there was a continued provision of, of capital and that liquidity was maintained. Uh, I would nonetheless say that, that it, a lot of what both the Federal Reserve and parts of the CARES Act did were treating a supply shock uh, with demand instruments. And you know, in the context of March, April, 2020, you know, we were faced with what was an exogenous shock. <laughs> this, is, this is not like 2008, 2009, where this is a shock generated by errors in the system. This, this was an exogenous 
uh, shock from a natural cause and uh, a, a government-imposed restriction. And so there, the, the, the moral hazard is going to be somewhat attenuated relative to, for example, the interventions of 2008-2009. I would add that I think the experience of, of 2020 ought to remind us of the importance of some of these supply side measures to, in the face of a, of a transitory shock like a pandemic, to focus on some of those measures that can preserve some of the supply side potential of the US economy, of the economy and preserve in particular the matches of employers and employees so that you don't sever those matches because once those are severed, then labor and product markets are gonna be operating below potential while new matches are discovered. And secondly, there's a lot of organizational knowledge, a lot of organizational capital that's embedded in small enterprises. And if those are a lot, of, if those go insolvent, then all that organizational capital is lost, and it can take some time to reconstitute. So I think that that's that for me was one of the big lessons of the policy response of 2020 was emphasizing the preservation of some of those some of those matches uh, that existed on on the eve of the pandemic. Uh, Claudio, I'll pose that question to you. As you think about sort of the extraordinary credit market interventions the Fed took, uh, were the risks worth, uh, maybe we won't know for until the next downturn, the next crisis, but as you sit here today, how would you evaluate those trade-offs? Well, first of all, as you can imagine, Nick, I can't really express views about uh, the policies followed by any specific central bank. and particularly normative views about those policies. Um, now, what I can say is that clearly um, the risk of financial markets uh, becoming too dependent on the actions of central bank is something that policymakers are aware of. And it is indeed a risk that one should try, try and avoid because uh, obviously otherwise it sort of constrains your policy too much and over time, you might end up in a place where obviously you don't like, you wouldn't like to be. And then as, as that saying goes, I mean, if you ask, well, if I were you, I wouldn't start from here. So that's precisely what uh, one has to avoid is that individual steps that you take in the short run in response to very specific circumstances, um, don't take account of the longer term consequences that there may be. And, and Mervyn, I'd ask you to weigh in as well. So I'm not enthusiastic about central banks buying private sector assets or indeed assets issued by levels of government below the federal level. I think central banks should focus on buying only assets issued by the federal government. And its other activities should really be about lending against collateral with appropriate haircuts. When I was still at the bank, I had to give evidence before a parliamentary committee. And they said, well, you, you know, you don't, why don't you just buy assets issued by small businesses? Because that would lead to tremendous success by those businesses. And I said, I gave the general argument that central banks should not be allocating credit between different sectors. And they said, no, 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 but it would really help, wouldn't it? And I said, well, yes, I can give you the name of a small business in the Midlands, which if we were to buy either debt or equity issued by that business, would I guarantee lead to a sharp rise in business and consumer confidence right across the Midlands? And they said, well, do it, do it. 
and I said, when I tell you the name of that business is Aston Villa Football Club, you may be less enthusiastic about it. And they did. They said, you can't do that. You can't do that. That's your team. And I said, yes, well, that's why I personally might quite like to do it. But it would be wrong to do it. And they saw the point. You know, you should not get involved in the allocation of credit or making judgments of that kind. If the government feels it's necessary to buy assets of particular either lower levels of government or the private sector, then the government should be the decision-making body. The central bank can always execute transactions, but it shouldn't be taking upon itself decisions about how to allocate credit. I'd just like to make one comment on the earlier question about targets. We, we abandoned intermediate targets for good reason, because as Chairman Powell said, they're always altered by structural changes in the economy. But it's a very different thing to say we're not going to have a monetary target, which I accept, I think I'll be wrong, than to say, well, we're not going to look at money or credit at all. And I share Claudia's view. I think we should look at money and credit. And I think the role of a central bank is to tell a story, a narrative, which brings all these key developments together. And if you find that the growth of money because of your own actions is expanding by over 20% a year, you need to explain why you think that will not lead to any rise in inflation, if that's what your objective is. So I think that an inflation target, it achieves very much the same practical purpose as the Fed's dual mandate. I wouldn't change that at all. Messing around with mandates is a dangerous thing to do. But what you need is to focus the central bank on saying, we will be held accountable in the end for our performance on inflation. And that's the virtue of the inflation target. It constrains the inevitable discretion that central banks have to exercise to deal with changes in the structure of the economy that lead intermediate targets to be unhelpful. Um, th thank you for that. So Jose asks, uh, is the inflation that we are experiencing a monetary phenomenon? And I'll ask the panel and we'll go in reverse order. So Mervyn, I'll come back to you first on that one. Well, to some extent it is. I think the rising core inflation in on this occasion is. You can tell the story in various ways. You can tell it in terms of a labor market. You can tell it in terms of aggregate demand being too high relative to potential supply during COVID, which has led to a rising core inflation. Although, as Chairman Powell emphasized, that's not happening now. So we're, we're not generating higher inflation at present. That's the, the challenge that having allowed it to rise, we're going to have to confront it, but it is going to go down of its own accord, I think. Or you can explain it in terms of what happened to the money supply. And if you're interested in asking the question, what should policy have done? I think it helps to look at the policy instrument that was used, which was QE, which led to a direct increase in, in the money supply. Um, it would have been nice had we been able to look through the rise in inflation contributed by higher food and energy prices globally. But I think we were not in a position to do that, given the rising core inflation that's taken place. Whereas in 2010 to 13, when the Bank of England saw a 25% depreciation of the currency because of the financial crisis, we were able to look through the impact of that on domestic prices over a three-year period and explain why we would accommodate that because domestically generated inflation was under complete control and was not threatening the target. And after that three 
years or so, inflation did indeed come right back to the target. The unfortunate thing about the present situation is that domestically generated inflation has gone up, which means that central banks cannot simply look through the rise in food and energy prices. Uh, they certainly don't need to bring down inflation to deal with the 10% inflation, but they've got to get on top of the rising core inflation. And uh, Claudio, same question for you. Isn't it the inflation that we're experiencing a monetary phenomenon? Actually, my, my answer is similar to, to Mervyn's. Uh, I would say uh, it is definitely it is definitely a nominal phenomenon. Uh, that's what uh, inflation is about. And I agree with what Mervyn said before that you can't really explain inflation but just looking at real variables. In some cases, it can actually be quite dangerous to do that. Um, therefore, you have to, it is, you, they, uh, you always have to restrain nominal purchasing power in relation to the ability to uh, the capacity of the economy to produce things. And so in one way or the other, there is always the, an accommodation of uh, the increase in the nominal purchasing power of the economy as a whole. And that's why we say that inflation is a monetary phenomenon. It is up to, and that's why central banks can, we assign it to central banks because central banks can limit the expansion in the nominal purchasing power of the economy. They're not the only ones, but definitely they can and they should. Tyler? I think I would have to come down on the side of the central bank's error being primarily one of permission rather than commission. Because if you look at an apples to apples comparison of core inflation in the United States versus say the Euro area in the 12 months through February, 2021, they were running exactly even, actually slightly less in, in the United States, 1% versus 1.1% if we take a harmonized uh, index of consumer prices. March, 2021 is when we get a divergence. Uh, and it's a big divergence starting in March, 2021. What happens in March, 2021? In the US, while consumers are already sitting on about $1.7 trillion in above trend savings from prior relief packages, we then have a fiscal stimulus equal to 10% of the annual output of the entire US economy. And the, the immediate impact of that is that demand for goods in the United States, which had already risen slightly above trend by the end of 2020, demand for goods in the United States surges by almost 11% month over month. That is a 240% annualized rate of increase in demand for goods. That is a lot. And we heard a lot of discussion of ports and supply chains in 2021. I actually think our ports did a pretty good job handling a, 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 a demand shock of that magnitude. They actually handled import volumes that were 20% above 2019 levels. I think this was just a big demand shock that was accommodated by the, the, the policy the, the policy posture of, of the Federal Reserve. And since since 2021, you know, now we've had some convergence between the, the Euro area and the US driven pri primarily by energy and food in Europe. But the initial divergence uh, was March 2021. And that was really what set the, the expectations ball rolling in the US. So I'll, I'll use this as the, the last question here, since we only have a couple of minutes left. And Claudio, I'll leave you out of this, uh, given your earlier disclaimer. Uh, but someone asks, when do you think inflation in the US is most likely to return 
to 2%. So I'll ask Tyler and then Mervin for their uh, for their views on when we might actually expect, when is a reasonable time frame to expect inflation? Uh, and I'll you know stick with core PCE here uh, to return to 2% in the US. Uh, well, thank you, Nick, for, for clarifying, because I was going to say which, which, by which measure. Uh, so I, I, I think it's unlikely uh, before 2025 that we get core PCE down to 2% or below on a sustained basis. And in part, just because we, we, one looks at the inertial components of, of PCE or CPI inflation, and we're seeing a lot of pressure on services. And you know, those the, at the end of the day, services are constitute the majority of the US economy. And so that means that even a, a 5% decline in goods price inflation is gonna be completely offset by just a 1% increase in services price inflation. Uh, and you know, we see a lot of this in, in rents, owner equivalent rents. I think that there's, there's a lot of, of services pressure that, that's gonna take some time uh, to bring down. And I would just note, sort of hearkening back to an earlier question today, in terms of the Fed's response moving forward, you know, if you would look back to the experience of the 1970s, on no fewer than four occasions, the Federal Reserve stated, decided, all right, this is it. This is when we get inflation under control. And four times they either paused or U-turned. And the, the lesson of the 1970s was, unless you are actually named Paul Volcker, uh, there's a high probability that, that you pause or U-turn before, before the task is done. So I, I, I think before 2025 is, is, is not impossible, but on a sustained basis, unlikely. And uh, Larry is not here, so I can't ask him, but Mervin, I'll, I'll come to you. Any any view on when we might actually see the Fed hit its target? I don't make forecasts, Nick. It's a terrible mistake to do that. I'll just say one thing. There's no reason why it shouldn't be possible to reduce core inflation to the target in a couple of years. Uh, as Jay Powell said earlier, uh, monetary growth is now you know, consistent, I think, with the target. If that stance is maintained over the next couple of years, uh, we don't know what the Fed will do. But there's no reason why core inflation couldn't come back. But what will actually happen, I think, is very hard to judge. Much will depend on the events in the rest of the world, food and energy prices. I said you can easily paint scenarios in which inflation either goes to double digits or actually is down at zero, depending on what happens to these immense shocks. And just remember, every economist who made forecasts on the 1st of January in 2020, when we didn't know there was a pandemic, got it wildly wrong. In 2021, we didn't know how quickly demand would be bound. And in 2022, we didn't know on the 1st of January that Russia was going to invade Ukraine. Making forecasts is a mug's game, and I don't intend to join it. Fair enough. Um, well, I want to thank uh, our panelists for spending time with us today. That is all the time we have. Uh, I will. I also want to thank the audience for joining us. And um, uh, Cato will be uploading Larry Summers's video presentation uh, online after the conference. So you can come back to the webpage for the conference or the YouTube page for Cato, uh, and you should be able to watch uh, uh, Dr. Summers's remarks. Uh, we will now move to a 15 minute break. Please join us back at 11.30 a.m. Eastern for panel two, the Fed's operating system and new monetary framework and appraisal moderated by Neil Irwin of Axios. Thank you all so much.